At the intersection of vision, technology, and strategy, you will find the secrets to unlocking the world's most ambitious digital experiences. Join us on Reshape Digital as we seek out the groundbreaking ideas that are reshaping the digital landscape. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Reshape Digital. Today's episode is brought to you by Open, Canada's fastest growing digital agency. My name is Chris Lico, And I'm Stephen Boucher. And today's episode, we're talking about how the digital world is physical. Our digital strategies, and in particular, our approaches to web design, are best guided by the world we live in. So basically, my thesis today is that from a design perspective, there is no digital world. Technology is supposed to augment our physical surroundings, not replace them. So I'll give you an example. So when we think about minimalist web design, which has become so popular these days, um, I was trying to think of like a definition, what, what it means. Is it just a fad or what's, what's kind of the core idea behind it? And I think, uh, so my idea is that it's kind of, minimalism is only what's necessary to improve our physical lives and nothing more. So to give you an example, the minimalist dream would be like having a, con- a transparent monitor that only displays necessary text, images, and video. So like almost like a holographic kind of, that's, that's the dream there, is having as little tech as possible. So I suppose, you know, minimalist design can go beyond the simplicity of like minimalist graphic design, which is, you know, lots of white space, lots mm-hmm. of, you know, um, flat fonts, things like that. Um, and it actually goes a, a step beyond and saying like, what is the actual clutter created by the digital space beyond just the graphic design and and how can I simplify all of that and and therefore simplify it in the digital in the physical world absolutely like if we think it will follow sort of a linear development it will go from you know old crummy 90s websites where there were graphics and gifs all over the page to now we have like you say uh, white space and that's a big trend the use of white space but what comes next right maybe maybe nothing at all and this is true in hardware too uh, big computers used to occupy pretty much your whole desk. There's nowhere to place your coffee. And now we've got super slim MacBook Airs. Uh, we can wear computers now. So it's it's true in the whole digital realm. Uh, Pokemon Go is interesting, too, because it didn't take people away from the physical world like so many video games do, uh, if used irresponsibly. But you could argue it made the physical world better. The game could work without the uh, sorry. The game could not work without the physical world, and the physical world was more interesting because of the game. Your neighborhood that you spend so much time walking around in, and, and there's nothing particularly uh, of note, be- suddenly has these weird little animal creatures running around. So it's a true. It's an example of a true uh, symbiotic relationship between physical and digital. And one of the first real successful implementations of augmented reality, right? These right. are these these. I don't want to call them hypothetical technologies because they exist, but mm-hmm. their applications a lot of the time are still hypothetical. And we get excited about these technologies, but in the real world, how much do we actually use them? And Pokemon Go almost broke new ground in the augmented reality space because it was a, an application that actually made sense and that people actually wanted to use it more than more than they didn't want to use it, which is yeah. more than can be said for a lot of AR technologies to date. Yeah, it's fascinating because even that kind of fizzled out and there hasn't actually been a, uh, a replacement for Pokemon Go, to my knowledge. Like, you know, uh, for instance, those uh, Battle Royale games, like all the other competitors came in. I think the po- Pokemon Go was the only one in that space. It kind of fizzled out. 
at least in North America, to my knowledge. And now there's, it's, uh, I guess people are kind of sick of it. I could be wrong. This is yeah. just based on, I remember all my friends playing and now none of them play. So Yeah, I think that um, it, it probably eventually feels like work. I think yeah. for a lot of people it felt like work because you still had to get outside uh, to be using it. You had to walk around or, or ride your bike. I, I think that it, what it did is it almost opened the door to an appetite for AR where you look at Google Maps, for example, introducing new technology where you can hold your phone up with the camera on and it'll show you the buildings and you'll see a giant arrow pointing down the street that you have to go down. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually do your navigation using AR, which... I had never thought, oh, this is a great thing that they should implement, and then they introduced it. And it's like, wow, how did we not think of that sooner? Right. Yeah, there's so many applications of, uh, of augmented reality, yet, unfortunately, I find there's still generally too much friction for these technologies to seamlessly integrate into the lives of normal people, right? It, but you're right, it does show this hunger for moving away from the screen, and uh, this idea that the monitor or the screen on your phone is actually just a means to the end, and we're actually going to get closer to the physical world, especially when you're thinking about things like uh, Internet of Things and, and AR, the, the goal is pretty clear. These worlds will become one, but adoption is tricky. Uh, at present, for instance, there's greater friction to manipulate a light in your house from your phone than to simply flip a switch, right? You know, like these, these uh, uh, smart home products. So when you, uh, when you manipulate it from your phone, you have to open up, pull, first of all, pull your phone out of your pocket, open up the app, go through the menu in the app, find the right light bulb or whatever, and then uh, adjust the settings from there. Right now, we're so used to the physical flipping the switch, it, it almost doesn't make any sense. It's a funny thing because with technology, we rely so heavily on our sense of touch. Mm-hmm. whether it's using your hands um, to type or to use your mobile device or, or even, like you say, to physically pull out your phone, right? And you could argue that the sense of touch is the slowest of the senses in right. the sense that you're able to process things faster by looking at them or smelling them or tasting them than you ever could by using your hands. And so I think that's where you see the opportunity to kind of move away from the not necessarily the screen, but move away from the use of your hands to interact with technology. And that's where I think voice is becoming the next big thing. But down the road, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's eye gestures that you can use to, no. to trigger certain activities. Getting into spooky territory. Now. Yeah, or they, they introduce different smells and who knows, eventually oh, it's just going to take over all your senses. <laughs> but... It's so interesting because these things that you can that that are possible, like manipulating your lights from your phone, are really really neat. But the problem is, we're humans and we have these stupid things called hands, <sighs> right? And we want to use them. AI doesn't have to bother with hands, right? If you can program something to to uh, manipulate your lights at certain times of the day, that's fine. But actually doing it, there's so, there's some friction there. There's design friction, and it makes me think perhaps. This just isn't appropriate. Like this sort of um, this approach is not appropriate for human beings at this point of time. Absolutely. I think of uh, on the other side, what is appropriate? I think Amazon is on the right track. Actually, have you heard of their uh, their Tide detergent button? I think they've got it for a few products, but the most <laughs> famous one is you, you're you're in your laundry room. You know uh, your Tide detergent is running low, 
So you press your Tide button, which you just slap onto your <sighs> machine, and then two days later, you've got uh, a fresh, uh, a fresh uh, jug of Tide Wild. detergent. Yeah. So smart. And that's it. They, I think they found, like, that's a great example of bridging the physical. They, they understood that it wasn't an issue with your, uh, your digital interface. It was your physical interface. They selected the right one, and they said, let's make a modification to the physical interface. And I think they did that uh, masterfully. Right. Uh, another thing I want to bring up is, have you ever heard of the book The Design of Everyday Things by uh, Don Norman? Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty iconic. He was a cognitive scientist, and he actually popularized the term uh, user-centered design, which has inspired generations of graphic designers. And my favorite example from the book is when he goes over the difference between push and pull doors. So, for instance, a, uh, often a push door will have a flat metal plate that serves no purpose whatsoever but to indicate that the door is meant to be pushed. And doors meant to be pulled will have a long, rounded bar that are intuitively used as handles for pulling, right? right? Just by looking at it, you know what, uh, what, what the intent of the uh, designer is. Right. So if we think of um, digital now, the way different buttons are shaped on a, on a web page... Right? It indicates this needs to be clicked, or think of hyperlinks. Right, We're so used to hyperlinks now, but that was a conscious uh, uh, design decision at one point. It does pose a challenge, though, in the, in the digital world. The design of everyday objects has evolved over millennia, and the way physical objects should look is so intuitive to us, we rarely even think about it. But uh, designing in the digital space is almost like starting from scratch, and this is why it's important to borrow things from the physical world. I think that there's um, there's almost expectations I've developed over time with, um, like you say, kind of digital interfaces and what we expect, right? And so a simple example is if you embed a link in plain text, uh, a lot of the time people aren't going to realize that that's meant to be interacted with. Yes. Whereas obviously having a button is something that you'd expect. And going beyond that, I think there's certain types of buttons that we expect for certain things. Uh, there's a difference between filling out a web form or clicking um, an ad, right? Mm -hmm. And we expect certain behaviors all the time. And I think that, like you say, the, the digital space is developed independently of the physical world. But at the same time, a lot of the, the tendencies and the trends are mirrored between the two. For sure. Yeah, and Google popularized what's known as material design, which is this idea that elements on a web page should resemble... Uh, almost bits of cardstock, right? Like the buttons and different. Um, well, I actually call them cards. Like on a on a retail page, all right. the different uh, products, and like the slightly raised, not over the top, but it resembles the physical world. Something we're all comfortable with. I think that borrowing um, from the physical world, you know, it manifests in a number of ways. But a really simple way is buttons. There's a reason why what we click on websites as CTAs are called buttons, and they're very similar to, let's say, um, an accessible doorway where you hit a button and it opens the door automatically. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very tactile experience, just as clicking a button on a website has come to feel like a very tactile experience. Absolutely. And uh, actually, it's funny you mentioned the doorway. That was kind of my inspiration for this whole podcast episode. I was walking to the supermarket, and... I was impressed, uh, I mean, we're, we're so used to this now, but I was impressed by just how two sets of automatic doors opened for me. And obviously there's an accessibility argument here, but 
I think, uh, I think the reason why they open for everyone, and it's not just a button, it just opens for everyone, is uh, it's design friction. They want to make it as seamless as possible, entering the grocery store, exiting with your bags, and there's a lot of uh, examples of that in, in the digital realm as well. Another one uh, I thought of, I was kind of on a roll here, was I was thinking about, you know how everyone has those junk drawers in their house? In my, like, uh, my desk at home has a drawer, and that's just where I put everything, money, um, um, little packets of seasoning from, from Domino's <laughs> or, you know, just, just random junk, right? right? Everyone's got it. And I think of that and it's almost like having an other section on your website. You don't really go in there that often. You just you tend to throw it, throw content in when it doesn't right. have a place and you kind of want to avoid that, right? I don't like having a junk drawer, but I have one. And so, so there's kind of an information architecture link there too. And, uh, I think of, uh, just as we're fallible in our physical homes and we can get disorganized, we can have the same problem on our web presence. Absolutely. I, I think that it's it's a design thing, but it's also very much the way a user interacts with the technology, right? I I tend to keep a pretty organized inbox and I have a, a system with labels and folders and I, I only keep the most recent and salient information in my actual inbox. Mm-hmm. But I've seen inboxes with hundreds or thousands and naturally some people get a lot of emails and it's hard to manage but um it's a great example of how things can quickly become cluttered when they're being used a lot that's it and it it makes you wonder what would uh my room and my house look like if i had just decided i'm gonna remove this drawer i'm gonna get out the screwdriver it's it's gone i guess you don't need a screwdriver (laughs) to remove a drawer (laughs) but uh that would that would change the design of my physical surroundings, right? Absolutely, and, and it's the same on on a website. So. And conversely, it's a lot easier to get rid of things in the digital space. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to delete five hundred emails that are in a folder in my inbox, I simply delete them. Yeah, it's I, I select all and I delete. That's it. But if you want to dump out your drawer at home. I mean, depends on if you care about recycling. You could always just throw it all in the trash, but you still have to pull the drawer out, take it to the trash, mm-hmm. dump it in, bag up the trash, take it outside, and it still fills space, whereas the things that you're deleting are disappearing. That's right. Another one I thought of was modular design, and it's linked to auto manufacturing. So let me explain what modular design is first. It's this idea that it's this idea of reusable components called modules they can use on different web pages uh, throughout your digital properties. And it's, it's a really efficient way. It's, it's uh, used um, instead of the, the template approach, which is each page has its own template and you need to fill the content on each page right. in the, within the template. Modules, you create the module once and you reuse it across as many pages as you like. Right. And... This is also used in auto manufacturing. Actually, it's used in tons of industries, but we'll use uh, autos as, a, as an example. Luxury cars will have the same chassis as like you know non-luxury vehicles, right. right? Like Toyota and Lexus. It'll be almost identical, and they'll reuse the parts in their factories, and it reduces time to market. They can get things out faster, reduces the product cost. They spend less time manufacturing the same parts, or, well, essentially the same parts, but just for a different vehicle. Right. And it's all the same online as well. A great yeah. example in the in the physical space is IKEA. Yes, IKEA yeah. uses so many different parts, down to like the boxes and everything else. And sometimes you'll be picking items up at IKEA, and you'll be asking yourself, "Why does this have to be in three different boxes?" 
Mm-hmm. Right? And the reality is that they didn't want to create a new shape of box to manufacture. And That's so it. if you want to talk about modular design, IKEA really has it down to a science. Unlike when they tried to do it with cell phones and mm-hmm. everybody was so excited because they said, oh, if I don't want a camera, I can just put a bigger battery in. And there was, a, I think there was a Kickstarter. I think there was a video where somebody was shown using one of these phones. And I don't know if it ever came to production, but it's something that humans are fascinated by. They love to be able to swap things out yeah. and um, embed components because to us, it's the most efficient thing in the world. Absolutely. And uh, a great tool for this is actually Drupal. Drupal is known for its modular approach to design. It's That's actually something it has on the... Uh, um, the Squarespace and the Wixes of the world because they have a templated approach, which is great when you're whipping up a quick site, but using the Drupal content management system, you design the modules, sorry you, sorry, you create the modules and you design them and then you can ship them on any section of your website, organize it however you like in a grid pattern. It's far more efficient, especially for enterprise websites. Absolutely. Uh, another one I thought of was, this one's kind of weird, but I think of the word tablet, and uh, uh, so we th- we know uh, you know the Sumerians they used to write on tablets, right in their cuneiform text. Right. Um, but since then, it's been scrolls, books, tomes, whatever, and then all of a sudden we have the iPad. The common link is human beings, right? That, that's the iPad is a tablet. And it just goes to show designers, they've been manipulating objects for centuries to mit, to fit the human body. And it's something that comes so natural to us. And I think that's kind of the success behind uh, tablet technologies. It's existed for so long. It's, it's, it's like harkening back to a time when that was the main mode of uh, communication. It's kind of fascinating. Right. So I think that when we think about trying to create low friction or frictionless designs, whether it's in the physical or the digital space. I mean, that's almost the the utopian vision is that we can make everything frictionless. But I think there's also opportunities to, to leverage friction for positive things. I think there's some cases where we've come to expect friction. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this exists in both the physical and the digital worlds. Picture yourself going to a music festival or, a, or an amusement park uh, there's a good chance you'll be waiting in a line with some form of barricade on either side. This prevents you from cutting the line, getting in a fight, getting kicked out, and uh, you know all that sort of stuff. So it's so essentially it saves you from yourself, and it's the same thing um, in digital. Dialog boxes will pop up and create unnecessary, well, seemingly unnecessary friction, but it could save you from deleting that super important file that you didn't mean to delete. Another one is having a uh, multiple steps to a sign-up process, right? That pre- prevents uh, bots from coming in, like CAPTCHA or, or just trolls, right? Have put, putting those extra barriers in place can actually really clean up uh, online communities as well. And it's funny where, where even friction isn't beneficial, but there's a psychological aspect to it. Um, the example I would use, and I'm trying to remember where this example's from. I, I read it a long time ago, but it was this technology that claimed to have some complex AI algorithm going on in the background. And uh, it would deliver results incredibly fast, lightning fast, right? where where people actually questioned whether it was delivering accurate results because they said, well, it's too fast. How could it be calculating anything? And the solution 
was actually to obviously to keep the technology as fast as it was because that's a great thing, but to add a five to ten second waiting period where there was a little circle loading showing that it was processing your results. <laughs> I, I wish I could remember what the technology it's was, but it was so remarkable in the way that their their user experience and their reviews shot up as soon as they started pretending that it took a long time to process because we have this expectation that things take time to calculate. That is so bizarre. Yeah. Wow. Here's a funny one I thought of this morning. Uh, GDPR compliance. So now you go on a lot of uh, websites, enterprise websites, they'll have, of course, that little, uh, they're asking for your consent to track your your, your cookies or whatever. Um, I've noticed different companies have different approaches. Some companies will actually gray out the screen and draw attention to the uh, the pop-up. And I feel like what they're trying to do there is to actually get you to quickly accept it. Yes, yes, let me get to the content. Right. And you hit, yes, I, I accept the cookies. But then some try to go for the frictionless approach so that you can engage with the content more easily. And they don't grow out the screen. And you can leave it, you can leave the pop-up just hanging out there all day and just not even engage with it because it's right. so minimized. So I found that interesting how there are two different approaches to uh, design friction when it came to GDPR compliance. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think it really... It comes back to testing and, and seeing what's going to work with your audience because it, there's so many psychological phenomena at play mm-hmm. when it comes to creating friction um, and, and what your intention is in, cre- in creating the friction. Is it because it's necessary? Is it because it's beneficial? Or are we simply protecting us from ourselves? Yeah. And, and one last example of intentional friction that I found, which is super interesting, was Snapchat and how they... Um, how they uh, teach users how to use their features. So what they do is they actually intentionally create friction. There are features that you cannot learn just by using Snapchat really, like it would take you too much time. But the idea is, it's called shareable design. The idea is you learn how to use Snapchat from other people. You say, hey, how'd you do that funny dog ear thing and make your tongue really long? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or, or how'd, you, how'd you draw that funny little squiggly I sound like an old man when I talk about Snapchat. I don't know. Seriously. But uh, uh, they're the master of that. I think that's so cool. Like not showing users how to get, imposing that friction on them so they have more of an experience using the technology. I find that really neat. So I think that while there's a lot of parallels and a lot of differences between the, the physical and digital world, I think that our our utopian perspective that we want to deliver frictionless experiences across the board. I mean, if you watch any uh, E3 technology keynote, you're always going to hear frictionless this, frictionless that. I'd rather not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Um, so I think that a lot of people have this vision of you know we want to make everything frictionless, and I think the reality is always low friction. I don't know that there's ever going to be such a thing as frictionless. I think, mm-hmm. unfortunately, as humans, there's friction because we have to do something. Yeah. Unless it's reading our minds, which I guess would be an actual frictionless that, that, experience. That's right. Yeah. Our bodies themselves are, are impose f- restrictions on us. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, um, you know, beyond a, a human-computer brain interface, I forget what they call it, um, you know, there's always going to be friction. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that's actually a good thing because it, it makes our digital experiences relatable, and they feel familiar. They feel like they're part of the physical world because of the amount of friction we experience in the Absolutely. physical world. 
Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. On that note, thank you all so much for joining us on this episode of Reshape Digital. And uh, we'll see you again next Monday for our next episode. Thank you. <laughs>